interest rates on the rise, borrowing to purchase property could get trickier. So where does this put you if you're going through a separation? Welcome to the Separation Guide podcast. I'm Kate Russell, and in this episode, I'll be learning about mortgages and separation. 75% of the couples who take our Q&A jointly own their family home. So what happens if you have a home loan when you separate? What if one of you wants to keep your property? How does refinancing work? Or what if you sell and both start again? What does borrowing look like as an individual rather than a couple? My guest today is Jana Papanastasiu, who's had an extensive career in finance and lending, working in the industry since 2007. Her career began with varied roles in the retail banking sector, and in 2015, she joined the finance division of the SCM Group as a senior lending specialist. She's industry qualified in finance and mortgage broking, and she's been helping out some of the couples who've completed our Q&A with their finances. She's very much dedicated to helping people better understand their borrowing capacity and navigate their financing options post-separation. I started by asking Jana about having an existing home loan and who's responsible for paying when you separate. That's a really good place to start, Kate. So usually when a couple separates, we may have one party moving out and one party staying and continuing to reside in the home with or without children. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess this then raises the issue of who is responsible for paying the home loan or the mortgage. So let's talk about this point from the mortgagors or the bank's perspective. If both of you are registered proprietors of the property or joint owners of the property, mm-hmm. then it's likely there that both of you are also joint account holders or co-borrowers of that home loan as well. In that situation, the bank or the lender would expect the home loan to to be paid, so the obligations to continue to be met on that loan, um, whether you know both or either of you are living there, um, or whether both or either of you are choosing to actually make those repayments. So effectively, so, you've got that contract with the bank or the lender, not with your, not with your partner. Exactly right. Mm. So the so in that situation, you're absolutely right. The loan contract, your loan agreement, is held with jointly and severally by you and your partner or ex-partner and the lender. And in that situation, you're liable for the whole loan amount and not just part of the loan amount. So from, from from the lender's expectations and from where they sit, the home loan needs to be repaid. What could happen if you don't pay your loan? So there are several ramifications to that. And, you know, if the loan is not being repaid, the situation could escalate with the lender mm-hmm. in that they could issue a notice to commence the process of repossession or selling the home from under you. Okay. And that's a situation that, of course, is, you know, the, the extreme situation and the end result of not making loan repayments over a period of time. But essentially, that's where that could lead. Now, the fact that Obviously, we're dealing with a family home here and it's the place and the roof over our head that, you know, we lived in and, and you know, continue to perhaps live in and raise our children in. Um, you know, that's really important to us. But when it comes to the lender's perspective, 
that's not a consideration when it comes to the amount of debt that you owe on that property. Right. So contributing to that mortgage uh, continually when you're going through that separation is really something that you need to put first and foremost. Yeah, super important. And obviously everyone's individual circumstances do vary and are different. Um, and as such, we, we have seen uh, a range of other scenarios and arrangements that are being made um, or put in place by separating couples to, to ensure that this obligation is met and that exp- you know property expenses are also continued to be met as well until the loan is refinanced. Um, all the property is sold if that's where the financial settlement lands. Other than the the lender potentially uh, selling the home or or foreclosing on the on the loan, what are some other um, effects of of not paying? There probably are two other main considerations um, or effects of not repaying a home loan and having loan arrears. Um, so one of those is actually the, the effect that it could have on your credit rating. So this could affect not just, you know, one of the borrowers, but the co-borrower as well. So both potential parties um, could have their credit rating affected because of the ongoing arrears position on a home loan. Okay. And if a credit rating um, is affected and credit score starts to decline, this could potentially affect any future loan applications that are made, you know, be it to either refinance this loan that's already in place or any future lending prospects as well. So that's one really important consideration. Um, And the second is a flow on from that and the ability to, uh, I guess, raise a loan in the future or in the near future particularly for the party that's choosing to refinance the loan and retain the family home. If there are ongoing arrears on a home loan, it would affect the risk grade of uh, that particular borrower and situation and loan application, um, which could result in in a number of outcomes, the most severe being obviously a a loan application decline. um, And that's something that we wouldn't want to see, particularly if you're looking to retain the family home. It could also mean if a lender is prepared to take on impaired credit or ongoing arrears position, then home loan pricing could potentially jump up because of the risk grade. So that could also affect borrowing capacity because the higher the interest rate, it means the higher the assessment rate. So the buffer rate as to how lenders assess loan applications, which could ultimately affect the end loan affordability. So if we have that and your loan affordability becomes, say, you know, an arbitrary number of $500,000, but you need $560,000 to complete the financial settlement, that that's going to be an issue. I see. So your borrowing power might be reduced even if your income reduce. is the same right okay exactly oh, right yeah, that's yeah. Quite serious. yeah so just to recap I guess the three critical points to I guess not meeting home loan repayments by either party are those three things one being credit rating could be affected your f- second being you know it could affect your future ability to to borrow at a certain level mm-hmm. um, and then the third and uh, probably you know most critical would be foreclosure from the existing mortgage or. All right. So definitely not a position 
you want to get in if, if you can avoid <laughs> avoid that's that right. yeah that's right. that's and right. and and just to go back on what you said earlier that even if one party has moved out of the of that property because their um, contract is actually with the lender they are still obliged to meet that that contractual payment um, that's for, right for the mortgage okay. that's right and now obviously everyone's individual circumstances are different and mm -hmm. as such there may be a range of other scenarios or arrangements that potentially you know a separating couple may have put in place depending yeah. on how amicable I guess the separation is mm -hmm. so you know, just to give you an example of something we have seen in the past, um, and now this is not to say that, you know, everyone can go off and, and make this arrangement, but this is a particular arrangement that this couple put in place, and that was that one of the parties stayed and remained and continued to live in the family home with uh, her two children, mm -hmm. and the ex-partner decided to move out uh, a rent a place. Now they decided that it was the person living in the home, uh, their responsibility to make loan repayments and also contribute to property expenses. And they were in a position to do so. So that worked for them. Uh -huh. And the ex-partner that moved out was going to cover their rent and also pay some child support to assist with ongoing living expenses of the party that remained in the home. That was a specific situation that worked for that couple until a financial settlement was reached yeah. whereby a refinance was completed, property transfer was affected, and a financial settlement was completed. It seems that having that discussion is really important. So not just assuming anything, not just thinking, oh, I'm moving out, I don't have to pay anymore. It's something you really do have to set up with your ex-partner and make sure that everything is being covered. That's right. That's yeah. right, Kay. And that's right. I think, yeah, really important point there was not to assume. Yeah. Great. Yeah. yeah. So, Yana, we're talking about property settlements. I know that that property settlement might be the sale of the family home or it could be a settlement where there's been a refinance and one party has been bought out. Mm -hmm. So I know that's a really, really big and emotional decision often to sell the family home it can be really emotionally charged um, you know we so often have this really deep connection with our home and we've built memories there we have community um, and you know especially if you've had children where they've, they've been born there and they feel safe there that's their home mm -hmm. so if I am weighing up the options with my partner or my ex-partner what do we need to consider if if one party really wants to keep the family home in the separation yeah, so there are a couple of um, probably key considerations to that. Um, and it is a situation of really understanding what could be the likely way forward or the likely outcome for that family home. So if it is you that wishes to keep the family home, it's not as straightforward as perhaps just taking on the responsibility of the mortgage and, um, and then parting ways, because it's likely that your ex-partner is still a co-borrower co on that loan and also a co-owner of that property. So at that point in time, one's loan affordability or borrowing capacity needs to come into place. So before a property can be transferred over or a mortgage 
can be repaid, a new mortgage is established, what needs to happen is we need to run some numbers around loan affordability and borrowing capacity to see whether this scenario is actually doable. Uh, so you just said there, Yana, that that a new loan is established. So I'm not just swapping the mortgage into my name. I have to actually establish a new loan. Is that right? That's right. So uh, a whole new loan application will need to occur at some point mm-hmm. if the intention is to retain the retain the family home mm-hmm. and obviously, you know, um, either pay out or take on the mortgage. So if yeah, if that was to happen, then a loan application needs to be put forward to a lender. Um, be it the current lender or or a new lender, then as part of that process, generally a lawyer is involved whereby they assist with the property transfer. So simultaneously when the property transfer is affected, then the new mortgage is raised. So it all happens at the same time, but all the planning needs to be put in place prior in order to get to that outcome. Because as I said earlier, if the loan affordability doesn't stack up for the person wanting to retain the family home, then it may not be an achievable outcome. Right. So you really need to be able to raise that mortgage by yourself, essentially. That's right. That's okay. right. And so then if that were to occur and, and I wanted to raise a mortgage myself, do I take just take over the balance of what's due to be paid or do we actually need to revalue the house? Yeah, so as part of the, the process, I guess, property valuation is a key consideration. Mm. Um, so, and again, it all comes down to, you know, what share or equity position is available in the property um, in order to split that out um, as agreed by the couple or the separating couple. Mm. So what happens generally is a property valuation is completed on the home by an independent property valuer that does a full thorough valuation whereby they would assess the current market value of the home and that figure that's reported back in a comprehensive property valuation report, that would be the figure that would be relied upon as the sworn valuation or property value. So in that situation, that kind of forms the the basis, I guess, to work backwards and arrive to an an agreement. If if my partner and I bought a house, I don't know, 15 years ago, and we've only got a couple of hundred grand left to pay, I can't just take on an extra hundred. We're going to have to look at it from its current value. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because there's equity, there's capital growth potentially that property has experienced. So uh, that effectively is sharing sharing the property, that's equity held in the property, and that is an asset. And so that forms part of the asset pool. So the equity position that's available in that home is part of the asset pool and is a you know probably one of the largest considerations um, and assets when it comes to a financial settlement. So certainly a property valuation is an important part of the process. And as part of the application process as well, the lender will also complete its property valuation. Generally, we find the uh, property valuation completed by the independent valuer and the valuation completed by the lender's panel valuer do align. And in that instance, that becomes what we call also the bank value where a loan amount is raised against. Okay. So there's certainly a property valuation that needs to occur before a refinance is completed. 
And do you see sometimes parties getting their own valuations done or do they generally just use one? Look, I mean, in in an amicable separation, generally they agree to engage one external property valuer. Mm -hmm. You know, we have seen some circumstances, uh, very few though, where uh, each party has requested their own property valuation from an independent property valuer that they've chosen to engage. But of course, then there's extra cost considerations in doing so as well, because they can be quite an expensive exercise uh, to engage an external property valuer. Absolutely. And just thinking about the fees of having a property change hands, are there any other fees involved in actually changing the title over just to one person's name? Like, Do we have to pay stamp duty or are there exemptions? Yeah, that's that's a really good point. So there may be some exemptions um, that could relate to some, you know, stamp duty. It is a state-by-state ruling. Uh, we would certainly strongly recommend that conversation be held with uh, your uh, lawyer or solicitor when the time comes or as part of planning for a refinance if that's the avenue that um, that will be taken. So if you're retaining the family home, that's something that needs to be discussed from the outset so we can ensure that all costs are built in if right. there are stamp duty costs involved. Okay. And then, of course, you've got your legal costs and conveyancing costs of property transfer. That's right. That's yeah. right. So there's all the ancillary costs that sort of go along with it. But the major cost, if it's applicable, in most cases we have seen that it may be avoided and there may be exemptions. But if stamp duty is applicable, then that could be a considerable cost. Right. So it sounds like keeping the family home, there are a lot of a lot of things to consider. And I know everyone's situation is different, but is it a better option to sell our home and start again? Yeah. I mean, I wish I had the answer to that for every circumstance. I guess what we can talk about through though are you know, the pros and cons of maybe selling the family home um, and the considerations around that. So again, I must say that everybody's circumstances are different. So, you know, different things impact different decisions and different outcomes. And it's, it's really important that I know we harp on about this as, you know, credit advisors or financial advisors, but it really is uh, important to take every bit of your circumstance into consideration when making these decisions. So let's think about, I guess, the, you know, the cons or the downside of selling. You know, the biggest one for me and what we've seen in most of our discussions with separating couples and their children is the emotional and the practical impacts of leaving their family home. So I think you touched on this earlier, Kate, and it really is such an important consideration. Now, obviously, the numbers are the numbers and we would need to work through that. But first and foremost, there are huge emotional connections to a family home or a home that, you know, our children have been born in and they've been raised in. So, you know, that's one implication to selling, I guess, and also leaving an area or a community that um, you or your children have been well established in, I guess, uh, and are very familiar with and comfortable in. So that, that's another downside. There's other, other cons as well. So if there is you know, a mortgage on the home, that needs to be considered. So if you obviously sell, 
at a point in time, then have you realised the full capital uplift of that property? Is that something that's important to you? Do you feel that that asset will continue to grow in value? And then there are other things such as costs involved with selling a property. So selling costs can be quite high. You know, when we're talking about marketing costs and real estate agent costs, um, you know, that can be anywhere between sort of 2.5% to say 3.5% of the property value. Mm. So if you're talking about a $1 million property, um, you know, 2.5, but the lower end is 2.5%. So you're talking about at least $25,000 in marketing and selling costs just to a real estate agent. Right. That you would be forfeiting. So that's a cost that I guess, you know, gets removed from the asset pool, if you like. So it may not be as financially advantageous to sell, but some couples may not be in a situation where the person wanting to stay in the family home can actually refinance the debt if there is any and retain the retain the home that way. So mm. again, and, and as you said earlier, Yana, it's not just refinancing the debt, it's also raising the capital gain that that property is seeing. That's right. That's to, right for the payout. Buy it from your partner, essentially. Exactly right. Mm. And so loan affordability and these early mortgage discussions and early assessment scenarios are absolutely critical to arriving to a financial settlement because it's really no use in arriving to a financial settlement and then a loan cannot be refinanced and the equity cannot be drawn out because loan affordability is just not there. Right. So to avoid disappointment, to avoid the added emotional stress to this whole process that is already a stressful situation and, you know, sort of anxiety is heightened um, in these types of circumstances. So to try and eliminate that and keep the process as smooth as possible, we would always recommend a discussion with either a mortgage broker uh, or a credit advisor or finance specialist to ensure that we've checked out these numbers at the front end as to whether can we actually afford or can one party afford to keep the family home by refinancing Mm -hmm. and drawing out the additional equity required to pay out the partner. So make sure you're really well informed on your options before you make those decisions. That's right. Let's talk about the pros of selling or, you know, the positives around that scenario. The, the, the highlight here would be releasing the equity. So what happens there is if a property is taken to market, it's sold in an open market, you know, it's sold for its current market value and the tangible cash component is fully released out of that property. You know, if there's any associated debt to that property, That is obviously first and foremost repaid and then any residual on the back of any costs would be uh, up for negotiation as part of a settlement agreement. But generally, as you know, a financial settlement is arrived to before the property is actually sold. So then each share and equity position is clearly noted going into that scenario. You come out of that clear of the debt you shared and in a position to move forward. That's right. As an individual. Wow. So big decision to make there. So many things to to weigh up and I can understand how people find that so incredibly hard to to decide. So moving parts as well to the process, I think, Kate, as well. Yeah, absolutely. Extra layers of not so much difficulty, 
but just challenges. Yeah, that complexity is, is real. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, Yana, I think your point there about making sure you're informed early on in the proceedings is so key. And just, you know, reach out to a trusted advisor or, you know, I know, Kate, your network of people is just incredible. So you would be able to connect, you know, the right people to the right service. And, and I think doing this at the forefront would save the, the separating couple so much time in understanding their numbers at the front. Absolutely. So, Yana, let's let's move on now to that post-separation phase. I'd like to get an idea about what they might face as an individual that they didn't face as a couple and what might they need to consider. Yeah, so I guess borrowing as an individual, whilst the credit requirements aren't too dissimilar to borrowing jointly as a couple, um, there are perhaps some further limitations that need to be considered. And ultimately, when it comes down to one person borrowing, we find that borrowing capacity is not as high, obviously, as a joint position, because there are two incomes generally in that scenario. And now we'd be talking about one income. So when it comes down to uh, loan affordability, I guess, again, really important to know your numbers and understand your numbers before making the decision to purchase a property, before even committing to a property purchase um, and understanding that as part of your planning process, again, before, you know, signing a contract of sale unconditionally. So there are factors that impact borrowing capacity you know income being one of them yes generally income is a is a stable you know variable for a lot of people that is if you're you know employed or payg employed Mm -hmm. Uh, there are other considerations if you're a self-employed person so these two factors will dictate which application path you would take and how your borrowing capacity is assessed And then on the back of that, there are the liability considerations. So any existing liabilities that are already in place, such as as credit card limits, or if there's any hex debts or personal loans or car loans, um, or if there's any salary sacrificing that's occurring or no-valued leases, these are all variables that could affect your borrowing capacity. And so as as a couple, you're kind of spreading that risk over two people, but now it's just all on on the one person is that right that's right that's right all on the one person um, against the one income if you like Um, and then there's living expenses as well to consider which is a really important part for loan applications a really important consideration when it comes to the assessment of a loan affordability so living expenses include all your day-to-day expenses excluding any mortgage repayments but also any expenses that relate to dependents So, you know, school fees that are now need to be accounted for under your income alone. Mm. Um, You know, child support could be included if it's being paid, but it needs to be under a a court order. And typically, if the child is under the age of 12, lenders will agree to utilise that as assessable income. Uh, I was going to ask you about that because you're talking about income. So are there any other payments? Um, like is spousal maintenance payments, child support payments, maybe family tax benefits, are any of are any of those aside from child support considered income if I'm applying for a loan? 
Yeah, so look, more often than not, a parent that has dependent children may not be employed on a full-time capacity. Mm. Um, So they do have split income types. And whilst there are some strong considerations that need to be taken into account when it comes to an assessment, there certainly are lenders that do take, you know, child support, spousal maintenance payments or family tax benefits into account when applying for a loan. Again, I must say that they are considered income where there are formal arrangements in place. For example, you know, family tax benefit, that's an easy one. That's generally paid out of Centrelink and there's clearly issued letter that would state exactly what that benefit would be. That's okay. That's an easy one to verify. But when it comes to child support payments or spousal maintenance payments, they need to be verified through, again, a legal document or a court order. So, Yanni, those um, financial arrangements need to be binding arrangements that have been signed off by the court, not just an informal agreement between the parties for the lender to see that as an income stream. That's right. To consider them as incomes, they need to be um, under under that method, correct? Again, I think I touched on it a little bit earlier, but also the age of the dependents really plays a part in how the lenders consider that income as well. So if the dependent is inching closer to being an adult, then that income is most likely not going to be used as accessible income for the purpose of a loan application. Because it has a finite lifespan. Uh-huh. Right. So the, the, the younger the child is, the more chance there is for a lender to include that type of income as accessible income. So lots of moving parts. But this is why we're here. We don't expect for, you know, a, an ordinary person to know all of these policies. There's thousands of lender policies that dictate loan affordability and how we assess loans. Mm. So that, that's why having these conversations earlier are prudent to the process. Yeah. And if you're, if you're using that as an income source that might contribute to your ability to borrow, what about the other way around? If you're actually in a position where you're paying support payments to your ex-partner, I assume the lender is going to take that into account when you apply for a loan. That's right. They will take that into account. So that would come under uh, living expenses. And those payments would need to be included and factored in as part of declared living expenses when it comes to a loan application. Mm. And generally, when a loan application is made to a majority of the lenders, bank statements are generally provided as part of the loan application process. So these deductions, if you like, that are coming out of a bank account uh, for support payments paid to an ex-partner are clearly visible to a lender. Mm and will be included as part of ongoing living expenses, which may or may not affect affordability at a certain level. So, Yana, you talked about the age of children, you know, as they become adults. There are a lot of couples who separate when they are older. Perhaps their children have grown up, and that is the point in in life where they actually do separate. So what if I'm a bit later in my earning life, maybe I'm in my 50s, and I'm in a position where I am really starting again, Will I be able to get a mortgage at that point? The short answer to that is you can absolutely get a mortgage at that point in your life. Again, provided there is the loan affordability that we can demonstrate to a lender. In saying that, later in life obviously means a shorter time frame to retirement. 
And that becomes an important consideration for an applicant that's perhaps in their 50s, 60s. And an exit strategy generally needs to be provided and put forward to the lender as part of a loan application. So whilst we still have access to 25 or 30 year loan terms, for, you know, people still in their 50s, um, potentially even their 60s, we need to have or demonstrate a clear exit or repayment strategy for that loan. What kind of exit strategy might you have for your mortgage? Yeah, so an exit strategy may look like this. You have a considerable amount sitting in super. Mm-hmm. And once you reach retirement age, you have access to that super. You may choose to make a lump sum reduction on your mortgage at that point in time to effectively clear the balance of the loan and be debt-free at that point in time. So that might be one's exit strategy in order to re-enter the market and have a roof over their head and an asset that they live in. So an exit strategy effectively is just that, how we would demonstrate to a lender in how you would extinguish or clear this mortgage at a point in time uh, when you transition to retirement. So, Yana, look, this system sounds really complex. As you said, so many moving parts to consider. You talked about getting professional advice. I mean, what, what for you is an ideal scenario where you have professionals assisting someone through this process? Certainly a complex system that's to to put it quite simply you're absolutely right Kate and you know not only that there's just a myriad of policies and requirements that need to be met in in you know the current age when it comes to financing so I would certainly recommend having a discussion with both a mortgage broker and a financial advisor to try and work together with these two professionals whereby the the mortgage broker can provide all the advice around pre-assessments and borrowing capacities and loan affordabilities and future scenarios and what all of that could look like based on current income or future income. And then the financial advisor would be best positioned to provide the advice around which way the financial settlement could perhaps go to benefit the couple in that situation. So certainly joint conversation uh, would be ideal, but if that's not something that, you know, one has access to, then certainly understanding the basic numbers for the way forward, if retaining the family home is a consideration, then at least a simple conversation with the mortgage broker to understand the position would be recommended. And then when you're really clear on what your options are, what's your best financial future. Of course, you'll be dealing with your legal representative as well in order to to reach that settlement. That's right. That's right. So the the legal professional helps put that in place and affect that financial settlement between the two parties in order to achieve the outcome, obviously, that's desired. Yana, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me podcast Kate I really really do appreciate it I see so much value to having early conversations around the financing pieces of a financial settlement 
Um, I feel like they are a really integral part of the process. And in working with other couples that have come through the separation guide, we find that the process has been a lot more streamlined and less stressful when everyone knows where they stand from the finance perspective. That was Jana Papanastasiu. Whether you want to stay in your family home or move on after a separation, make sure you're informed of all your options. As Jana said, finding out what's possible early in the process can give you the confidence that you're making the right decisions. We're expanding our network to include more mortgage brokers like Jana to help you through this difficult time. If you found the information in today's podcast useful and you'd like to learn more about your options in separation, or if you want to be put in touch with professionals to help guide you through, please go to the separationguide.com.au and complete our three-minute interactive Q&A. If you know anyone who's affected by the issues we talked about today, please share the podcast. In the spirit of reconciliation, the Separation Guide acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today.